Well, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians 1. Today, uh, we're going to begin a new study. Uh, we'll walk through the first letter to the Thessalonians and the second Thessalon- letter to the Thessalonians over the next um, eight weeks. Paul writes uh, these two letters to this little group of Jesus people. These are possibly the first couple letters that Paul actually wrote, and they most likely predated the Gospels. So these couple of letters might be the first Christian literature into culture at the time. Uh, The Gospels would come just a little bit later. Paul wrote these letters primarily to teach Jesus people how to live. He wants these guys to know how Jesus lived and how he loved and how he taught people to live and love. So he's writing these letters to encourage the people of Thessalonica. He probably wrote this letter maybe around 50 AD uh, from Corinth. Some of you know that he spent some time in Corinth and wrote a couple letters back to those guys. I want to read the first verse and then give you some background on this little church. So 1 Thessalonians 1.1 says this, to the church of Thessalonians, of the Thessalonians in God the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. It's beautiful, little introduction. He's writing to the church. He's writing to Jews and Gentiles. Uh, They're both equal here in the church. And in the first verse, he kind of places them geographically. He says, hey, this is where you are. And he makes sure to identify them spiritually. He references their town and he references their identity He's reminding them at the outset of this letter that they are in God, that they are in Christ. The old has gone, the new has come. He's gonna stress that idea throughout this letter. And then he says these words, grace and peace to you. Grace here just means rejoice, right? And peace, this idea of shalom, favor, grace and peace to you. Love that little greeting. How about uh, we greet the person sitting next to us with that little greeting, grace and peace to you. Go ahead, tell the person sitting next to you, Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. If you have your Bibles, we're going to back up. Acts chapter 17 tells us a little bit about how this church got started. So I want to give you just a little bit of context here. Acts 17. This little church was started um, while Paul was on his second missionary journey. He takes along a couple guys with him. Paul brings along Silas and most likely Timothy, maybe even a few others. He leaves Philippi, comes down south and ends up in Thessalonica. Acts 17, chapter one, or excuse me, Acts 17, verse one tells us what happens next. So when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue as was his custom Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. And some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. And with this little group of people, this church got started. Paul and Silas helped these guys get organized, kind of helped them get mobilized. But before too long, not sure how long, but before too long, there was a persecution that broke out and Paul and Silas took off. Uh, they, um, they, they feared for their safety and the church said, you guys got to go. 
Um, Just as the church is getting started, persecution happens. This is verse five. But other Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they didn't find them, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here and Jason has welcomed these guys into their house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. And then they made Jason and the others postpone and they let him go. A little bit of context to understand what's going on. Now I want to give you one big, big, big overview of this whole letter of uh, the first Thessal- the letter to the first Thessalonians. I figured the best way to do it is to uh, lean on our friends from the Bible Project. So check out this video to get a, a little bit of a better understanding of Paul's purpose for writing this letter. Here we go. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul, and the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer, and then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves because we came to dearly love you. 
Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. They were faithful to Jesus. They were full of love for God and their neighbors. And they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter's second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that he'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer, that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. 
1 Thessalonians reminds us that from the very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life, it's motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what 1 Thessalonians is all about. All right, you guys got it? Grab a piece of paper and a pen. We'll have just a quick quiz. Here we go. I uh, heard uh, about six things just want to highlight. We'll spend some time over these next weeks working through uh, this letter. But there were six things I pulled out from um, what they said there. The first is that we holiness, we Jesus followers, holiness, love, and a future hope is the Jesus way. Holiness, love, and a future hope is the Jesus way. Secondly, following Jesus is always going to be countercultural. Always. Thirdly, ours is a holy way of life that sounds very similar to the first one. Ours is a holy way of life. We're set apart. We have a holy purpose. Fourthly, our response to hostility should always be love. Meeting opposition with grace and generosity. Our way of life is motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus, which has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. So just a couple truths there that I think are important for us to hold on to as we think about this first letter that Paul wrote to this little church. I don't know if any of these resonate with you or if any of these shake you or call you or convict you. As I was reading through this list, um, this one here, our response to hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity, that one speaks deeply to me. That's one that I need to pay attention to, that I desire to pay attention to. Well, one of the things you probably heard in the video is that there are these three prayers that Paul prays. He prays one at the beginning, one at the end, and one in the middle. I want us to look at all three of those prayers just briefly. The first is here in verse 2, chapter 1, verse 2 and verse 3. They're prayers of praise here. This is a prayer of praise. We always thank God for all of you, and we continually mention you in our prayers. And then he says, We remember before God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first prayer. I want you to hold on to that. Flip to the end of the letter, chapter 5, verse 23 and 24. The ending of the letter includes this prayer. He says, May God himself... The God of peace sanctify you through and through. He prays, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. I think Paul's just praying what Jesus prayed. In John 17, Jesus prayed, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Paul's just praying like Jesus prayed. And Paul reminds us in his prayer to the church of Thessalonica that he will do it. God will do it. He will do it. 
I don't know if any of you are waiting for anything in particular. I don't know if any of you are standing in God's presence on behalf of someone else in particular. But God says here through this prayer that he will do it. He will do it. He will do it. Begins the letter with prayer, ends the letter with prayer, and then there's this prayer right in the middle. If you have your Bibles, uh, slide over to chapter 3, verse 11, 12, and 13. uh, Chapter 3, verse 11, 12, and 13. This is kind of the heartbeat of the whole letter. Now, may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ clear the way for us to come to you. Like He wants to come back. They want to come back and hang out with these guys. So here it goes. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. And may he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. These three prayers hold Paul's teaching together. I want to make sure that you see that. Prayer is not the only thing that Paul does, but it is the most important thing. Love this prayer at the very beginning. Flip back to the prayer at the very beginning. We remember before our God and Father, your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope. Paul is lifting out these three spiritual qualities, right? You see it, faith, love, and hope. In the New Testament, those three characteristics are always listed sort of fundamentally of the lives of those who follow Christ. So if you follow Christ, these three characteristics, faith, love, and hope are a part of our lives. And Paul is saying thanks to God that this little church, this persecuted church, is exhibiting these three qualities, faith, love, and hope. Some of you might remember uh, 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is often called the love chapter. It might even have been read at a wedding that you've been to. It was read at our wedding. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 13 says this, and now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. I'm not sure if you're praying for anybody. Uh, Anybody here praying for anyone? Like maybe you have a friend or a parent or you have an enemy or, you know, someone uh, praying for anyone here? If you don't have anyone to pray for, you're not sure who to pray for, you can always pray for me. I'll take your prayers anytime. But I bet most of you guys are praying. There are probably times when you're not sure what to pray for a son or for a neighbor or coworker or a colleague. Lots of times if I'm not sure what to pray for, I just pray scripture. I was thinking about this, this particular prayer. Like maybe you're praying for a daughter who's got a faith that's kind of shaken. And maybe the simple prayer is, God, would you let faith arise in my girl? Or maybe there's a friend who's lost in self-indulgence or self-protection. God, would you remind my friend that there's no fear in love? Or maybe it's your own life. Maybe doubts growing and those familiar haunts or whispering and you're like worrying and afraid. God, just fill me with your living hope. Fill me with your living hope. It's a simple prayer. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, so beautiful, especially after Easter. Praise be to the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul's just giving God thanks 
for all the good things that are happening in the lives of this little group of Jesus people. He's giving him thanks. He's giving God thanks for how these people are allowing these characteristics to just flow or overflow from their lives. This sort of faith that just is overflowing from the way that they believe. The labor is prompted by love. And the hope to endure, the hope to take another step is the hope that's inspired by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Paul is teaching this little church basically what Jesus taught in John chapter 15. If you have your Bibles, flip back to John chapter 15. Paul is just telling these guys what Jesus has already taught. It's beautiful. I want to read a long passage of scripture here from John 15. Starting at verse 1, go all the way down through verse 11. Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, abide in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do remain in me, you're like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Or excuse me, if you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, Ask whatever you wish and it'll be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you'll remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Abide in Jesus, abide in his words, abide in his love, remain, remain in his way. Jesus says when we abide in his love, the outcome is a harvest of fruit. And Jesus says, hey, apart from me, you can do nothing. He makes it pretty clear. If we abide in the vine, the overflow is his will and his way being made manifest among us. Doesn't happen the other way around, y'all. Doesn't happen if you strive. Doesn't happen if you work real hard. Doesn't happen if you grin and bear it. Then all of a sudden, that's not the way it works. It happens when we remain. It happens when we abide. And Paul's given thanks for the way these guys are living into the words of Jesus. Work that comes from an overflow of faith. Labor that's prompted by love. Endurance that's inspired by hope. Check out the next couple of verses, verses four down through verse seven. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. 
These guys are being persecuted. Some are even being martyred, and yet they're living joy-filled lives, joy given to them by the Holy Spirit. Paul starts here reminding them about love. He is always going to remind them about love, the, the call to Remember, don't forget, God loves you. He's for you. And then he reminds them about the good news. The good news comes with the power of the Spirit. When you think about the power of the Spirit, uh, what do you think about? Like, do you think about miracles? And like, when I think about the power of the Spirit, I think about this big stuff, like really loud, this manifestations. Think about like somebody does something crazy or a miracle happens. When I think about the power of the Holy Spirit, that's often where my mind goes. Um, in the church that I grew up in, there was a lot of conversation about conviction. And it seemed like if the preacher really preached loud and he really preached strong and he kind of banged his fist a little bit, then that would be, evoke some conviction, you know. But I don't know that that's what, I don't know that that's what Paul's talking about here. It seems like more times than not, the most compelling and convicting actions of the Spirit are not in the grandiose they're not in these big public displays, but more often in the small and the quiet, maybe in the unseen and the unknown places of life. The power in the Spirit. What's the power in the Spirit? It shows up in the life of His everyday ordinary people in love and joy and peace. The power of the Spirit that brings conviction, maybe it's patience with a boss or with a customer Maybe that's really where the power of the Spirit is. Or kindness to a stranger. Or goodness that overwhelms badness, you know. Or responding in gentleness in the face of anger. Or faithfulness that keeps showing up. Faithfulness that keeps showing up. Faithfulness that keeps showing up. Or self-control instead of being motivated or paralyzed by fear. Maybe that's where the power of the Spirit is. That's where conviction comes. That's the way Jesus' followers are invited to live and invited to love. Well, over time, this little group of people started to imitate Paul's faith. They started to live the way that Paul lived. They were turning away from their old beliefs, their old behaviors. Paul invested deeply in meaningful relationships. These guys then began to invest deeply in meaningful relationships. Paul would speak boldly and courageously. These guys began to do the same. Paul suffered persecution time and time again without giving up, without giving up hope. And these guys suffered persecution all the while maintaining the fruit of the Spirit, all the while maintaining joy, abiding in the vine, living and loving in joy. Ultimately, Paul says the imitation that these guys, who they're really imitating is Jesus. Jesus, who was led by the Spirit. Jesus, the most joyful human being ever to live. Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, suffering, dying to redeem us. Here are the next couple of verses, verse 8, 9, and 10. The Lord's message rang out uh, from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. A lot going on here. 
These Thessalonians not only welcome Paul and his friends, they begin to imitate him, right? Verse 10, real powerful. Verse 10 starts talking about um, what's gonna happen, sort of the coming of the Lord. One of the interesting features of both letters to the Thessalonians is that at the end of each chapter, there's some reference to the coming of the Lord. It's really, really cool. Uh, I don't know how you guys are. Uh, most of you know that I'm like a sentimentalist, uh, a nostalgia guy. Like Christmas time, I always get out like all the books that we read to our kids when they were little. You know, like I'm nostalgia all the time. I love like looking back. We got pictures all over the house of where our kids were little. I always, I love looking back. These guys didn't look back. They didn't look back to that first Christmas. They didn't look back to when Jesus was born. Um, there's nothing wrong with looking back. They rejoiced in it. They celebrated in it. They were right to do so. But these guys looked forward. Their hope lay in Jesus's return. Their hope was forward. I want us to look just really quickly at Acts chapter one. These are the final moments of Jesus's life on earth. And then we'll come back and finish uh, here in, in verse 10. So Acts chapter one, um, the disciples are asking Jesus, so, okay, we're looking forward, we're looking forward. When are you coming back? Like, how is this all gonna work? And Jesus um, explains just really briefly. He says this, uh, this is Acts chapter one, verse seven. It's not for you to know. It's not for you to know the times or dates the father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power, right? When the Holy Spirit comes on you, talked about that. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and at the ends of the earth. He said, hey, Jesus is saying, hey, don't worry. Just keep doing what you're doing. You don't have to know. Just keep doing, just be faithful. The power of the Holy Spirit will come on you, motivating you, empowering you. Uh, just serve him with faithfulness and fervor. And then he was gone. Just like that. This is the next verse. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes. And a cloud hid him from their sight. They're looking intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Hey, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you've seen him go into heaven. We like to look back. The early church looked forward. They were always looking forward. They held fast to the promise of Jesus's imminent return. Verse 10, one more time, and wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. That was it, that was it, that was it for the early church. That was it. Jesus whom God raised from the dead, his return. That was their anchor when they were threatened with persecution. That was their anchor when they were threatened even with death. And that was their confidence for ultimate victory in God's prevailing love. Jesus said to his disciples, hey, before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live, you also live. That's the promise we celebrated last week. Because he lives, we live. Because he lives, we live. And it's the promise that we get to celebrate, not just on Easter, but every day of our lives. Because he lives, we live. Well, I'll just stop here. And I'd like to invite you to just say a prayer with me. Or really, what, I, what I'd love for you to do is just, is just maybe even huddle up and pray this little prayer um, that we just read over the people around you. I'd love for us just to pray verse 3 over each other. Um, I know some of you guys don't like to pray out loud, and maybe you're introverted and you get scared about like praying out loud or whatever. It's okay. It's okay. You, I don't want to make you do it or force you into anything here, but just want to invite you. Just an invitation that if you'd like to, just pray this little prayer 
um, over the person sitting next to you. Pray for work produced by faith. Labor prompted by love. And endurance by the hope of Jesus. And celebrate the work that God's already doing. So we'll just spend a couple moments here praying over each other. And then Sonny will come and and lead us uh, in worship. So let's pray.